Hey, I'm happy to be here this morning. I feel privileged uh, to be asked to be here. Uh, no, actually, I'm amazed because a few years ago, uh, maybe several years ago now, time flies. My wife and I were asked to do a marriage seminar here, and maybe some of you were there, I don't know. And in spite of that, Pastor Rick still asked me to come back, so I'm back. But in all seriousness, I really do praise God for your ministry here at Mount Hope, all the way from the little kids at your school to all of the things that your uh, church does by way of missions, by way of outreach to the community and the world, all the way up to uh, seniors. And um, don't be ashamed if you're a senior, go to that dinner, it'll be great, I'm sure. Um, Anyway, Pastor Rick asked me last spring if I'd be interested in perhaps uh, speaking to you all about, uh, about the marriage relationship. And I said, well, talk to me in the fall. And he did talk to me in the fall. This was September, just about the fall. And he said, well, you're all set for October, right? And I said, well, I don't remember saying yes, but I guess so. So anyway, here I am. Uh, as you as you realize, as I realize, this is the um, kickoff of a series. I didn't know that either, so um, that's okay. God has His ways of doing things. Uh, I'm sure you realize that not only is the whole topic of marriage uh, an extremely broad subject, uh, you are also, as was mentioned earlier, a very diverse group of people. And so, um, you know, we, we can't hit everything, but hopefully we'll talk about some basic uh, relational principles that not only apply to marriage, but to everything. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I did this in the first service and it was quite enlightening. Um, just by the show of hands, how many of you have been married uh, less than 10 years? Well, that's interesting. The younger group are the early risers. <laughs> that's great. Um, how about... 10 years to like 25. Great. Um, how about uh, over 25 to 50? Nice. Anybody over 50? Wow. Congratulations. That's... <laughs> I congratulate because marriage is no small task, right? I, I guess you could say it's the best of times, it's the worst of times all at once, and everything in between. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this time, but how many of you would do it all again in a heartbeat? That is with the same person, I mean. <laughs> right? my, my guess is that most of us would say yes, at least I would hope so. But at the onset, I do want to acknowledge that for some people, perhaps the answer would be no. And it's probably for good reason. There are good biblical reasons uh, why some people cannot stay married. And that's a subject for a whole other uh, time. Um, so I won't go into that. But the reality is that we live in a broken world. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us then that brokenness really permeates every single aspect of our lives, including our relationships and, of course, including marriage. At Park Street Church, where I'm, I've been there for a lot of years, it's for this reason that we offer divorce care, which is a, uh, a ministry not to help people get divorced, but for a ministry that will help people who may be separated or going through a divorce, whether they wanted it or not. Because we firmly believe, and I, I believe this to the depth of my heart, that God heals, God forgives, 
And God never stops welcoming everyone into his church. So there's always uh, God's grace that can bring us through. But I also realize that some of you didn't raise your hand at all because you're unmarried for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I hope that you will not take this time to take a nap, but that uh, you will get gleaned something uh, about relationships in general, um, even though I'd be talking about the marriage relationship. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the problems I, I do hear in, in counseling and other places uh, from married couples is that it doesn't often occur to us as spouses to treat our spouses as we would our closest friends, right? If we uh, could open our, our doors to our homes, uh, others would see that, but behind closed doors sometimes, not out of malice, not out of uh, anything that is evil or whatever, not because we don't love our spouses, it's just human nature, right? We're home, we let it all hang out, and sometimes what hangs out bumps the other on the head and it doesn't feel good. So that does happen, but I say that because the principles, um, the way we treat our friends, is the way we treat our spouses. Um, <clears throat> when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, he meant it. In fact, he went so far as to tell us even to love our enemies. One of the hardest things I ever had to do was after 9-11, we had a prayer service at Park Street uh, downtown uh, the day after, uh, a couple of days after, and I had to give the prayer. And that Sunday, I had to give the prayer. And I had to pray for my enemies. I didn't know what to say. So I simply said, well, God, you taught us to pray for our enemies, and so we do. That's it. I'll let God worry about it. But it's really difficult. But Jesus meant it. Love everybody. And he meant it across the entire spectrum of uh, human relationships. So let's look at the Bible passage. You may be wondering why in the world I choose, chose uh, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab as an example of marriage. Um, hopefully it will become evident um, Let's, let's read this passage from 1 Kings 21. Uh, sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace, and in exchange I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Jabot replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreel had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why don't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. 
Well, they were quite a couple, especially when you realize, if you know anything about the story, King Ahab is talked about in the Bible as the worst king ever, the worst king in all of Israel. Out of all of the kings they had, he stands out as being, yeah, there they are. King Ahab marries Jezebel in a match made just a little bit south of heaven. Um, this was not God's way of marriage, and we'll see that. But they are a prime example of a timeless married couple. All right, so he is the worst king, and she wasn't much better as, as queen. Uh, but in all honesty, they're probably not a particularly good role model. But as a case study, uh, we could really learn a thing or two from the relationship of, of this couple. So bear with me, here's the story. Many things can be said about King Ahab. Mostly bad, but many things. But one thing for sure, King Ahab was a builder. He built cities, he built palaces, and these cities and palaces were really the envy of the neighborhood. They were wonderful. The palace at Jezreel was one of his favorites, if not the favorite, and it's been said that King Solomon uh, had an ivory throne, and everybody was enthralled by it. While of King Ahab, they said he had an ivory palace, which everybody was enthralled by. It was first-rate in beauty. It was state-of-the-art for its time. It was extravagant enough, fit for even the greatest king. But there was one thing missing, and it gnawed at King Ahab. His beautiful, state-of-the-art palace should have great grounds to surround it. Maybe you've seen uh, the great grounds and gardens of uh, some of the palaces in Europe, or maybe even right here in the United States in Rhode Island at the Newport Mansions. The gardens are magnificent. Even after all these years, they're kept up beautifully. And so what palace doesn't have a great garden surrounding it, right? But for that ancient world, there was really a, a very practical reason to have a good garden. It needed to be first rate because it needed to grow crops to feed everybody who served the king as well as the king himself, and queen for that matter. So, long story short, King Ahab was used to getting his own way. He wantonly eyed that vineyard near his palace, but it belonged to somebody else. He tried to make a deal two choices, swap it out and I'll pay you for it. Either way, it was an offer that Naboth couldn't refuse, except he did. He dared to flatly hand out a bold-faced refusal. Now, this refusal was shocking. I, don't, I think we lose the impact because we're used to saying no to things, um, and there usually aren't a whole lot of consequences. But Ahab held people's life in their hands. You don't say no to a king, and you don't say no to King Ahab. But there was something behind Naboth's unwillingness to sell that vineyard. It wasn't because he was stubborn. It wasn't because he was obstinate. It was because he was following the law of God. It came out of his pure righteousness. He wanted to do what God instructed Israel to do. Do not sell the land of your inheritance. Mainly because it was a symbol of how God gave Israel the land as their inheritance. So you didn't do that in honor of God. 
Well, all right, so that's the backdrop of the story. Now we get to the marriage part of the story, and what's interesting is the Bible allows us to eavesdrop uh, into the marriage of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The story takes us smack into the innermost private chambers of the palace. Nobody's allowed in there except the king and queen and perhaps a few choice servants and, and guards probably at the door. But we're allowed inside. We're allowed to see and hear things that are privy and private to this marriage. You know, that's kind of a shocking thought. I would hate that to happen to me. But when we find out Ahab would not take this lying down, this refusal. Well, actually, I take it back. He did take it lying down. He, he was so sullen, so angry, he took a little temper tantrum, laid on his bed, and wouldn't eat. It said that his uh, face was to the wall. That's an idiom meaning his face was away from the door. His queen walks in the door, sees him on the bed, sees the uneaten food, and picture, if you will, her finding her husband, King Ahab, the great king of Israel, the builder of cities, the builder of palaces, sulking because he didn't get his own way. Now, when the Bible allows us this level of detail, it's for a reason. The Bible cannot afford to add anything extra in its stories because there's way too much history to include. And as John said, if we were to tell the story of God, the whole world could not hold volumes. So whenever something in these stories, we have to sit up and take notice. It's not irrelevant. So it begs the question, what is this detail? What is it telling us about these two? Well, for one thing, I'd like to suggest that in describing this behavior, it gives us insight into the inner character of the marriage relationship between these two. If they knew anything at all, they knew just how to manipulate the situation so they both got what they wanted. King Ahab was selfish and greedy and wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Queen Jezebel was equally selfish and greedy. And if the king lost power, she lost power. And so the, queen, the king and queen's relationship actually fit like a glove. They had common goals. They got along well. They worked well together. They knew how to get things done. They each had their roles, and it worked like a well-oiled machine. The problem is they flushed out the worst in each other. Rather than calling each other to growth in good works, in a greater sense of how God wants us to live, they fed their respective narcissism and turned the blind eye to anything that would move them personally and as a couple towards righteousness and spirituality. They were stuck in this unrighteous, negative, personal, and relational pattern, and they stayed there, and they stayed stunted in their growth, emotionally, spiritually, and every other way. So we continue to eavesdrop in them in the intimacy of their private room. <clears throat> Listen to Queen Jezebel, we read. Is this how you act over King of Israel? And by the way, I hear this from her as pretty indignant, okay? Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and cheer up. I'll get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. My paraphrase would simply be, snap out of it. 
You're a great king. You act like a sovereign. I'll get the vineyard. Perfect compatibility. They know just what to do, and they do it. If it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be comical. So here's her plan, basically. She would forge a letter as if it was coming from the king, steal his seal, and put it on there. In this letter was an edict calling all the elders and all of the noblemen to a solemn fast. And because this is how things were done in Israel. Whenever there was a grievous sin that needed to be fleshed out and repented of <clears throat> and be exposed, uh, they would gather elders and uh, the noblemen in a, in a solemn fast, in which case they would deal with the uh, subject or whatever it is uh, before God. Except Queen Jezebel had no use for doing anything religious or anything spiritual. She could care less. What this was basically connived for was that uh, she was trying to, and she did, she planned to set up a phony trial for Naboth. She was out to convict Naboth of blasphemy against God, which would get everybody's attention, and against the king, which would get everybody afraid. And not necessarily in that order, I would add. And guess what? The plan worked. Naboth was executed, along with any heirs. Uh, everybody dead. King Ahab was free to take the vineyard by eminent domain. The problem was solved. And the couple worked together very well. Except it wasn't in a godly way, obviously. So as the king and queen high-fived each other over their victory, they were oblivious to the fact that they were doing anything at all that would uh, be noticed by the God of heaven and earth. God sends a prophet to Ahab and uh, the queen, and Elijah, who is the prophet, tells Ahab in very graphic, gruesome terms how God's judgment would fall upon him. And it was to be a death that nobody would want. So Ahab, being Ahab, humbles himself before God. Why wouldn't he? At first, when I used to read this, I would think, I don't believe that repentance for a minute. Not for one second. Except when you read on, it says, well, God saw his remorse and withheld the judgment. So you have to say, well, something was going on in him. But then again, a second look, it is congruent with Abraham, um, Ahab's personality. He is so narcissistic. He's so worried about himself. He wants what he wants. So self-protective that he will do whatever seems best for him in the moment. And the sad thing is, I would venture that half the time he didn't even know he was doing it. It was so second nature to him. It just came out of his innermost beings. So, there you go. You have uh, this king and queen instigating each other, instigating their relationship, and enabling both of them and their relationship into a continuous downward spiral. Well, Ahab probably heard that at least a tad when he was afraid of what might happen. But I don't think they really understood the gravity of their actions because they both felt, failed miserably. 
when it comes to actually having a clue of what God requires of his people. God requires fundamental change from the inside out, not superficial outside changes, but change from the inside out, and that is rarely easy when we're trying to change our innermost core. My mind wanders to Paul's words to his letter to the Ephesians. He writes this, Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, that sounds really highfalutin and spiritual, doesn't it? But what does it actually mean? What does a new creation mean? What does it look like? Perhaps Paul anticipated questions like this, so he, he sets forth um, several ethical admonitions on what it means to put on a new self. How you know uh, a new self is being created in you. Allow me to finish reading on, and it's not exactly, I've kind of condensed it a bit. First of all, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Relational terms, hear that? For we are all members of one body. Second of all, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sin go down while you are still angry. Again, in relational terms, do not give the devil a foothold, he says. Third, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. Why? So they may have something to share with those in need. Again, holiness, righteousness, in relational terms. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are redeemed persons, a new creation by the Holy Spirit, and so we do not tear down one another. We build each other up. Unlike Ahab and Jezebel, who didn't know it, but they were tearing each other down. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other. Again, why? Because God, in Christ, forgave you. And so, in summary, he says, be imitators of God. That's basic righteousness. Be imitators of God, dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I hope you realize again that some of these were action words, some were, of course, speech, some were attitudes, but this, Paul says, is what God requires of us in true righteousness. This is what he required of his people of all ages. Paul isn't writing anything new that isn't found anywhere else in the, in the Bible. This is what he wanted from King Ahab and everybody else who lived up to this time right now. Well, um, the other thing I think is interesting is that there's a motivation for this. Paul doesn't say, do this or else. He doesn't say, don't let the anger go down, anger go down uh, 
wrath go down in the evening or whatever, you know, or else, or else what? I don't know, but he doesn't say that. He simply says, because there's good reason for this, there's a motivation. What he is saying is, as the people of God, Paul is telling us to be what Christ made us to be and to do what Christ made us to do and to think what Christ has made us to think. In other words, to live in congruence with our Christian identity as the people of God. My point is that, again, everywhere in the Bible, righteousness is always pointed out in regard to, in the way we, in regard to our relationships and how we actually uh, engage in those relationships, including marriage, which is a relationship on steroids. So in the marriage context, truthful speech becomes a requirement because we are members of one another. Jesus himself said, the two shall become one. The very same language that is used for the church, the oneness in the body of Christ, he uses that language in the marriage relationship, that oneness, you become one. Um, he also says, using this metaphor, we can no more tolerate uh, dishonest speech or whatever that is pulling people down any more than one part of the body can deceive another part. Right? Your finger can't hurt and pretend it doesn't hurt and, you know, my finger's cut, but I'm not going to let my brain know that. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's a oneness. So the warnings about anger precede the general warning about not making room for the devil. In other words, evil, as you know, you may have already experienced this in your life, will take every opportunity, every crack in the vessel, every breach in the relationship, every innuendo, every assumption, every opportunity to deceive and to mislead. And because of the nature of evil, it sounds right, even though it isn't. Ahab and Jezebel, they thought they were doing the right thing, right? They were getting what was rightfully theirs as king and queen of this great nation. And yet evil wedged its way in and they kept opening the door further. So I guess we forgive because God forgave. It's not because we're so gracious and merciful and altruistic, but because God forgave us. Let me say one thing about what forgiveness isn't, because sometimes we mix it up. It's not absolving somebody from their actions. It is not making excuses for their actions. It is precisely because we have been hurt by somebody's actions or words that we need to forgive. It has to be exposed, explained, and then forgiven. And as much as it depends on you, reconciliation. So we live out the law of love in the way that God loves us. The scriptures always say that marriage is something that God created from the very dawn of creation. He saw that it wasn't good that we should be alone, so he created another. Keep in mind, nowhere in the Bible do I read that Adam was complaining to God about being alone. 
Adam had his animals. He was naming them. He was happy in the garden, presumably, talking to God in the evening. Who wouldn't love that? That's great. God says, it's not good that you're alone. And so he created a relationship like none other so we could enjoy this relationship, which is analogous to the way God loves us. God's love for us is always the metaphor for our love for each other. Whenever we read or hear about how husbands and wives are to love each other, we're reminded again that this gift God has given us is grounded in God's love. Love that's not just an attribute of God, but his very nature. Loving in the way that God intends goes then beyond the natural dictates of mutual compatibility. Think about that for a minute. Ahab and Jezebel were extremely compatible couple. But I don't think anybody would say, oh, look at that great example of the way God loves us. See? Don't get me wrong, compatibility is very important in a marriage. And when I've done premarital counseling, I'm, I'm always asking about their compatibilities. But the reality is that that's not always 100% correlated. Sometimes the opposites really grow us. Sometimes the opposites really challenge us in a way that we wouldn't be otherwise. Excuse me. So the marriage couple, when, when you stand at the marriage altar, I've never heard anybody say, I take you because you are so compatible with me. Right? Usually, when, you know, compatibility doesn't hold weight. When, when we are just dating somebody at the first, and I know this was 100 years ago for me, but I vaguely remember it, there was nothing that person can do wrong. They're so different from me. They're so exciting. Wow, they think differently. They act differently. They like different things. That's so wonderful, right? And those of you who have been married, you know, you get married. And then what? You are so different. How did we ever get here? Right? So if it's dependent on that, we could fall into the trap of this ugly couple. But our marriage covenant is really a promise that we will love each other in the way that God loves us. That is unconditionally That's what all the sickness and health and all of that's about. I will love you unconditionally. And that simply means we make personal, moment-by-moment, day-by-day choices to treat each other in the way that God treats us. So what does loving the way God loves us look like in an ordinary, everyday life? Well, one scripture from Colossians 3, I think, reflects this meaning, and I think it reflects it very well in summation. As dearly beloved people, we are invited to clothe ourselves with love, trimmed with compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. Does those words ring a bell? You probably have read them in conjunction with the fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in your life. So you have compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness the way that God has forgiven, which we've already said. 
In another part of the New Testament, in Romans 5, it tells us the way God demonstrates his love for us. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The point is, among other things, God did not wait for us to be the perfect man or woman in order to love us. He didn't ask us to clean up our lives in order to love us. He loved us when we were enemies to him or could care less about him. He didn't wait for the world to be on their knees waiting for Messiah to come and then he sent them. The world was anti-everything and he sends his savior. That's the kind of love God has. So then we must not and cannot wait for our spouse to be the person to become the ideal we'd love before we begin to outdo ourselves in lavishly loving in the way that God loves. That means, of course, forgiving each other, seeing the best in each other, enjoying each other, spurring each other on to growth and maturity. It's because we strive to love the way God loves. That is, doing anything that would serve your spouse's best interest, going anywhere to seek them out, even when they want to hide, embracing them even if they don't feel worthy, so that we could bring each other back into a relationship that, like God refers to us, we refer to our beloved as our friends. There is no greater love than this. And it really is a balancing act. It's balancing those things that seek for our own personal growth and maturity in those things which will enhance and grow the relationship. So as a backdrop, as a practical matter, I would say, quite frankly, I believe that most successful marriages will attest to this. There are times when you will wonder if you can even keep this up you'll wonder if you even want to. But loving in the way of Christ perseveres. There are times when we wonder if we ever will come to an agreement. Loving in the way of Christ is not self-seeking. No record of wrongs are kept. Sometimes there there are times when oneness gets stretched to an uncomfortable distance. So much stuff gets in between. Loving in the way of Christ protects, is patient, and is always kind. Sometimes, on the other hand, we are pleasantly surprised by some unexpected gracious act of love. Loving in the way of Christ rejoices. Sometimes we feel energized by each other. Loving in the way of Christ makes it the joy to act on that. There are times when we know that we have been united body and soul in a very special way. Loving in the way of Christ cherishes those times. Our king and queen in question today clearly missed something God invests a great time of energy in. Their own personal selfishness kept them from taking every opportunity to love the way God loves, spurring each other on to growth Rather than fueling selfishness, greed, and power, they had the opportunity to help each other towards right living before God. For us, 
Perhaps these negative, destructive patterns may not be as deeply ingrained as with this infamous couple. It's easy to say, well, I'm not like her, I'm not like him. And you're probably not. But there's some of that in all of us. And quite frankly, I think I would have found it just about impossible to live with either of these two. And from a perfectly human point of view, even though they were perfect for each other, even though they knew how to get each other what they wanted, together they continued to reinforce the worst. They dug their hole deeper and deeper into the mile of their own personal, relational, self-destructive patterns. I don't think this couple would have ever darkened my door for marriage counseling. They wouldn't need to. They were way too compatible, and they had no interest in changing the way their compatibility fed the worst in each other. So I, I think you'd agree that as a rule, most of us, unlike this couple, we run into difficulty, not necessarily because of these huge, great, big, horrible sins that our loved ones do. Maybe that happens sometimes, but not usually. I think the things that get to us and erode our oneness and our marriage relationship are often those things that grow out of self-centeredness that irritate like grit in the eye. It's not serious, but it certainly is annoying. But if it's left unchecked, it will incense and inflame in ways that consume one's well-being. For several years, <clears throat> the women's minister at Park Street and I periodically ran marriage classes. Uh, we did marriage classes for honeymooners, and then we did some, that was a year uh, under being married. Then there were others that were married, we called it marriage through the ages, which meant any age. So you'd have a two-month married and a 50-year married. Um, and so we'd be together. So we, we ran these, these things. And inevitably, especially in the honeymooners class, we'd go around and ask, um, among other things, what surprised you the most about getting married? Do you know what the number one answer was? Selfishness. They said, I didn't realize how selfish I really am. And that was a surprising thing. So when we um, heard this so often, when we were trying to uh, plan for a class again in another semester we were doing it, uh, it, this was on conflict resolution, we felt that the lesson needed to be had for all of us that love and selfishness are totally incompatible. So we debated and we agonized on how to do this, and then we finally debated some more about this hokey little exercise that we were going to ask the class to do, or at least uh, role play for them. Um, and finally we said, okay, let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? So we tried it. The exercise was very simple. The love traits from 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that's the passage that's read at weddings all over the place. Love is patient, love is kind, is not rude, etc. It was put on the transparency. Now, I'm well aware that many here have no idea what a transparency is. <laughs> right? I'm dating myself totally. Some of you weren't even born and they were out of style. 
Transparency is nothing but uh, literally a piece of celluloid, about you know, 9 by 12, and you used to write things on it or print things on it, and you'd put it on this little machine thing that the light would go through and reflect behind you on the screen. Hokey, yes. I mean, that was the olden days, but that's what we had. So we decided we'd write these words on this transparency, and she and her husband role-played. So they sat facing each other, and they were role-playing an argument. Now, they were doing, you know, you face each other, you try to talk calmly, give each other time to speak, but the, the catch in this particular role-play was they held up that transparency in front of each other. They each had one, held it in front of their eyes. So they were looking at their spouse through love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude, love does not envy, does not keep a record of wrongs. And when you think about that, it's really hard to have a full-blown, knock-down, drag-out argument, right? Those words are convicting. They break down the defensive walls. They really um, open us up to know what God requires of us. So, to make a long story short, that actually was kind of a cool little exercise, and I keep thinking about that, even though I don't have the transparency in front of me. In conclusion, the real conclusion, I just want to leave you with the words of Paul from Colossians 3 again towards the end. <clears throat> just take this to heart. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen. Let's pray. Thank God we do look to you because we know that in ourselves we can do nothing. You wish to transform us from the inside out, by the renewing of our minds, the cleansing of our hearts, the uh, purification of our souls, and yet we confess that we resist this uh, in every way. So we pray, O oh God, that your spirit would break down these walls within us, that your spirit would clothe us with uh, the acts of righteousness that come out of uh, loving you, and so that your love would be seen through us to one another, particularly in our marriages, as well as all relationships. Dear God, we pray that you would be with every couple here today, that um, <clears throat> you would help us all to remain firm as a witness to your grace in this world, where so much brokenness resides, that you would help us be uh, a sample of strength that comes from your very being. And so as we go today, we pray that all our relationships will reflect you and that we would always love in the way that you have loved us. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.